The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. We thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Um, we need to hear from you. We need your help this morning as we open your word. Um, so Lord, please please meet us here. Keep us, keep us focused, Lord. Keep all the distractions that are constantly beating on our door. Um, Lord, keep those at bay for us. Um, and Holy Spirit, just speak to us now. Uh, we love you. We're here to meet with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our topic today, what we're talking about, is called family fights. And you know, family is the greatest source of joy, isn't it? I was thinking about my day yesterday. We started the day off going to the planetarium. Somebody in here hooked us up with some, some passes to that. Thank you for that. We had a fantastic time learning about the stars from Big Bird and Elmo. And you know, I was sitting there on the, on the row and I just looked down and I saw my kids and my wife and, and, and my kids are just looking up in absolute awe at everything they're seeing around them. I asked Max later, uh, I said, did you like that? Did you like the planetarium? He said, yeah, I love learning about space. That was so cool. And, and it was just like I, there, I don't know I don't have words to express how I felt I just have sounds like it was just huh like that's just how it felt like I don't know just something moved me I really liked it all right and then yesterday I, I was I was having a conversation with my brother all the way in Chicago we were texting back and forth just laughing making each other laugh I'm so thankful for that relationship I'm thinking about last night I went to the the Tiger football game they played a middle school team and uh, while while I was there I went with my father-in-law and I had a great time with him I'm so thankful for my in-laws. You know, there's just, there's just joy that comes from family. And yet, there's also a lot of conflict that can come from family as well. You know, I, it reminds me of a uh, you know, police officer jumps in his car real quick and calls a sergeant on the radio and says, I got this really weird case. Uh, this woman just shot her husband for stepping on the floor she just mopped. And the sergeant said, that is crazy. Uh, have you arrested her yet? And he said, no, not yet. The floor's still wet. And so, like... <laughs> We can kind of get after it with one another. We can kind of have that conflict, and family is absolutely the source of that. And, and the, the reason is we got power struggles. I mean, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, you see that's one of the consequences of the fall. That's one of the consequences of our sin. What does he say to Eve? That your desire will be for your husband, he'll rule over you. What does that mean? That means power struggles. There's always going to be the, the, the pulling back and forth of power. How can I get my way? And we see that, and it's, it's not just between husband and wives. It's just between all family members, right? I mean, you think about siblings, brothers and sisters, uh, they, they're constantly fighting. I, I think about our own kids who are angels. Well, we have one angel, she's a girl, and then we have three boys, and uh, as we as we like hang out with them in the house, everything's fine, and they could be just having this picturesque, you know, moment together, just playing so wonderfully together, and we think, wow, like world peace is possible, and then you leave the room, and you just hear immediately like war breaks out, you know? And, and you walk in and one of your sons just dropping the people's elbow, one of your other kids. And you're like, what just happened? I just left the room for a minute. And there's just conflict there. There's something about like family, like the people I care about the most, I have the least patience with. Does anybody else experience that? I don't know why that is. And, and so there's, there's all this, there's just conflict that comes with family and it's all power struggles. It's about getting our way. I want to be treated a certain way. I, I want this to happen a certain way. Whatever it is, it's that power struggle. And, and the reality is we are a church family. God called us together and he didn't call us together into a club. He called us into a family. He's not the president. What is he? He's the father. And so we're in a family. And that's what I want to talk about today is not family fights, but 
but the family fights, church family fights, how we relate to one another when we don't get along, when there's conflict between us. And of course, this is absolutely applicable to outside of the church, but that's what I want to focus on today is, is how we treat one another, other believers together. And the narrative I want to look at today comes from Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't, there's some under your seats, or if you want to follow along on your smartphone, you can do that as well. Uh, Numbers chapter 16. While you turn there, let me kind of catch you up with what's going on. So at this point, God has delivered his people from Egypt. They're no longer slaves. Uh, they, are now, uh, they are now in the, in the wilderness traveling towards the promised land. He has promised them this, this land flowing with milk and honey. And they're finally, they're getting there. They're actually there. They're just right across the river. And so they go, you know what? Let's send some spies in. Let's check out the land. If we're going to take it, we kind of need to know what's going on there. God's already told us that people are there. Don't be surprised when you walk in and somebody's hanging out there. People live in that land, but I'm going to give you the land. Okay? So you're going to conquer them. Don't even worry about it. Now remember at this point they had seen all of his incredible, the incredible things he did to deliver them from Egypt. They saw this great army swallowed up by the Red Sea that they just walked through. Okay, They've seen some really incredible things and so he says don't worry, you should be brave. Go into the land and take it. I'm with you. So they send some spies and they send 12 spies all 12 of them come back. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, couldn't be happier. You, they said, guys, you would not believe this place, okay? It, is, it says flowing with milk and honey and, and everything else. It's just, it's absolutely incredible. This land is great. Let's go get it, right? And then the other 10 spies, they go, well, actually, the milk and honey's great, but there are giants there, guy, all right? There are giants in that land, and, and I, don't know about, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not that big of a guy. I don't, you know what? I think we should just go back to Egypt, okay? There weren't giants in Egypt. Let's just go be slaves again. This is ridiculous. We can't take this land. And so they don't trust God. And so what ultimately happens is that they don't get to go into the promised land. God sends judgment on the people. In fact, he wants to wipe them all out for doubting him. And, and that's what he tells Moses. He says, I'll just start over with you. I'll, I'll keep my promise and develop you into a great nation. And he says, no, please don't do that for the sake of these people, of course, but for the sake of your name. And, and so please don't do that. And so the Lord relents and he says, fine. And so ultimately he, he does. Some of them die instantly, but he says to everybody else who doubted him, he said, look, all of you will die here in the desert. You're going to live out the rest of your days here in the wilderness. You will not get into the promised land, but your children will. I will fulfill my promise through your children. And so, you know what? If you're an Israelite right now, you have not been having a good time lately. You can see the promised land. You can see that incredibly fertile, wonderful place that the Lord said was going to be yours, and you messed it up. So they're not in a good place. They want some things to change. And that's what leads us here to Numbers chapter 16. And so picking up there, uh, we're going to read a little bit of this together. Let me kind of talk you through some of it. So we've got, immediately, we've got a guy named Korah, and he's from the line of, of Levi. Those are the, 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 the tribe of Israel that God chose to serve him in the tabernacle. So you got that dude. You got Dathan and Abiram from the line of Reuben, okay? And that's from uh, the firstborn of, uh, of Joshua's son. So the, the first tribe, that's them. Uh, and then they've got 250 chiefs of the congregation, so really influential, powerful people and some other people in Israel together and they rise up against 
Moses. They say, we want a change. And so you've got these two from Reuben's line, so the firstborn. So maybe they're thinking, you know what, we need to lead, all right? You guys, you guys aren't from the firstborn line, so you really shouldn't be in charge anyway. We should be in charge. And I know we've got to have a priest, so don't worry. We went and got your cousin over here, uh, uh, Korah. He's going to help us out and be our priest. Look at verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So they immediately start off with something that's not true. They're taking this call to be holy and claiming that everyone is holy, saying that, look, there's no difference between you and me. There's no difference between anybody else. And then they accuse them of exalting themselves above all of the congregation. And they're saying, you're over here setting yourself up like you're better than all of us. There's something wrong here with your leadership, Moses and Aaron. So they, they challenge them. Now, if you're Moses... And Moses has been through it, okay? If you are Moses, at at this point, think about all that he's been through. He's gone up and spent time with God on the mountain, right? He comes back down and they are worshiping other gods. They built a a calf out of gold that God miraculously gave them on their way out of Egypt. And they're so unfaithful. And and he's he's called out and interceded for them, for God, uh, for the people, to God so many times. And here come these people saying... You're not doing a good enough job. If you're Moses, what's your next move? I know what mine would be. Like, it would just be, okay, God, uh, light him on fire. All right, now light him on fire. Now light him on fire with him, right? Like, I would be, I, I would not be very happy. What's Moses' response here? What's Moses' response? Look at verse four. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Moses immediately, he's not a coward. He's not afraid. Why does he fall on his face? It's a posture of humility. I don't want to fight you. You're bringing this accusation against me. You're, you're, you're being really aggressive. I don't want to fight. And so he's humble. And look at verse 5. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he'll bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put fire in them. Put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. So Moses, not only is he humble, but then he offers a solution. He says, we can figure this out. We'll offer something to the Lord tomorrow. We'll, we'll take these censers, we'll put fire in them, we'll put incense in them, offer to the Lord, and he'll make it clear who's his. He'll choose who he wants him to serve as in this priest position. We'll, we'll let the Lord choose here. And so he offers this this solution here. And then Moses tries to reason with Korah. Look at verse 8. Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers and sons of Levi with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against them? So Moses is trying to reason with Korah. He says, Korah, is it, is it not enough? 
enough that you're a Levite? Is it not enough that he's chosen you and your sons to serve him in his tabernacle? Is that not enough? I mean, you get to camp around the tabernacle to handle these holy things that if anybody else of the 11 tribes touch, they die. But you get to handle them. You get to be close to God like that. That's not enough for you that you have to challenge Aaron as the priest, that you have to grumble against him and you have to come against the Lord and what he set up. What is going on, dude? Come on, come to your senses here. And then he tries to reason with Dathan and and Abiram, but look at their response. Look at verse 12. Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you brought us up out of the land flowing from milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So they refuse to talk to him. They refuse to reason with Moses. In fact, like, then they start accusing him. You're the reason we aren't in the promised land right now. You're the reason. So they start pushing blame onto Moses that belongs to them. They're not even trying to resolve this. They don't even know what Moses wants to say. But they say, no, 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 we've made our judgment. We know your motives. We're not even going to talk to you about this. And look at verse 15. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them. I have not harmed one of them. He says, look, I haven't mistreated them. I haven't taken advantage of them. Lord, you know this. But one of the things I love about Moses here is Moses is furious. He's furious. Who does he go to? He goes straight to Korah and punches him in the mouth. No. Who does he go to? He goes and finds Abiram and punches him in the mouth. No. Who does he go to? He goes straight to the Lord. And he says, Lord, you handle this. You handle this. He doesn't take his anger to other people. He takes it straight to the Lord. What a great example. So Moses tells Korah and his men, prepare the censers the next day. Prepare the incense before the Lord. And they did. And it says that Korah assembles, this is Korah, assembles all the congregation against them at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So apparently Korah had been busy. So Moses says, hey, hey, tomorrow morning, let's offer the Lord this, this uh, offering. We'll let him decide. So in the meantime, Korah has been going through the people of God and going, hey, look, we're about to take over. If you want to get on the ground floor of this thing, you better show up tomorrow in support of us. And so it says all of the congregation, so a bunch of them, all right? A bunch of the Israelites show up in support of Korah in this rebellion here and stand before the the tent of meeting. They've been corrupted by Korah. And look at verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I might consume them in a moment. So they're standing there, all right? They, like, they've got their incense ready too. That was the deal, right? Hey, Aaron will bring his, you bring yours, we'll see who God chooses. And they're standing there and the Lord speaks to them. Now, apparently, they don't hear it. Apparently, Korah and them don't hear it. This is the Lord speaking to them, so I don't know what it was. Hey, guys, like, get away from them. I'm I'm about to light them up. And so he tells them that. He says, look, I'm going to consume all of them. I'm done with this. I'll start over again. Now, Moses and Aaron, what do they do? What would be your response to this news? Mine would be run, forest, run. I'd be out of there, all right? Like, I would be gone. I don't know how he's going to consume. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I am not going to get my eyebrows burned off for anybody. I'm out of here. But what's their response? Look at verse uh, 22. 
And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? Moses and Aaron plead for their flock. It's incredible humility. They begin to plead for their flock, and they say, please, please. They don't say, you know what, serves them right. That's enough. They have been nothing but a headache. They've been nothing but a pain in my behind. I am, I'm done with this. Let's start over, God. That sounds like a good plan. They plead for their flock. And, they, and this isn't the first time they've done this. They've done this several times, but they plead for their flock. So the Lord spares the congregation. He tells everyone, uh, he says, all right, tell the congregation to stay away from Korah and from Dathan and, and Abiram and everything that they own. Don't let any of them just even touch anything that belongs to them because I'm about to pour my judgment out on these people who've led others astray. So Moses gets to the people and he says, look, don't even touch your stuff. You'll be swept away by their sin too. Just get away from them. And then these rebellious men with their families stand at the front of their tents just waiting. And Moses says this, look at verse 28. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they're visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belong to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, the place of the dead, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord." So Moses asked for them to be judged in a brand new way. He asked for, for the Lord to, to, to pour out his wrath, but in a different way. Why? Out of kindness. Out of kindness to the congregation. He says, Lord, would you use this opportunity to show people, to put at rest this, this division among your people? Would you use this as an opportunity to unite us? Show yourself in how you bring about their punishment. So the earth, as soon as he finishes talking, Scriptures say the earth opens up and swallows those men and their families and everything they've owned. And you know what the people of Israel do? They take off. They take off running. And they say, it'll be us next. We were with those guys, all right? I signed their petition, okay? I got to get out of here. And they take off running. And then the 250 men who had tried to offer uh, this incense to the Lord... Um, it says that a fire consumed them. So consumed their offering and consumed them as well. And the Lord tells Moses, hey, go get Aaron's son, Eleazar, to go get those, those, uh, the, the things that they were using um, to bring, the censers they were using to bring the incense to me because those things are holy. Those are set apart for my service. Go get them, hammer them into plates, and cover the ark with them as a reminder to people that, that you, aren't, you don't pick who comes to me. You don't pick who offers, who brings the offering to me. I do. You remind the people that. You put that plate there. You know, this, this, this story we've just read here in number 16, it is an extreme example of a power struggle, okay? I'm not saying this probably happens in our home. I'm not saying it happens here. Nobody walks into Brother John's office and says, I could lead this church better. All right, it's time for you to step aside. Here's my censer filled with incense. Nobody walks into my office and says, I could do student ministry better than you. May the Lord open up the earth underneath you. No, like that doesn't happen. But, but we still do have power struggles. We still do have that, that, that time where we, where we go after what we want. Where we're not thinking about other people. You know, the scriptures say that love doesn't insist on its own way. You guys remember that? You better say yes. I'll preach on that again. All right, so... Love doesn't insist on its own way, right? And yet we still do. We still do insist on our own way. We still, we're still just like Korah sometimes. We're still just like Dathan sometimes. And what motivated them? And what motivates us to do that as well? Well, I mean, the easy answer, the basic answer is, is pride. I mean, we all suffer from pride. It doesn't matter. You could be in church forever. We all suffer from pride. 
Reminds me of, uh, there's this lady in church one time who, who she, she suffered from pride. She comes up to her, her pastor and she said, Pastor, I'm, I'm struggling with sin. You know, I, I come to church and I look at all the women in the room and I just sit there and I just think over and over again that I'm the, I'm the prettiest woman in the room. And the pastor looked at her just very, very compassionately and said, no, no, no. When you think you're the prettiest woman in the room, you're not sinning. You're just mistaken. And so, like, <laughs> we all deal with pride. Like, we all have that. And, you know, pride is all about I, isn't it? It's all about I. Me, 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 I, I, I. So here are, I want to give you the four eyes of conflict. As we go back and look at uh, Korah's rebellion, what are the four eyes of conflict? The attitudes that drive us to, uh, to, to create conflict. The attitudes that drive us to serve ourselves. One is the attitude of I deserve. So these men, two of these men, they were Reubenites. So they were of the firstborn. And so they probably thought to themselves, hey, we should be running the show. This guy's not a firstborn Reubenite. He's not one of us. He's not the best of us, right? And so we should be running the show. And that's exactly Korah's attitude as well. Like, hey, look, I can be a priest. I can offer the offerings. I know how to do this. And so I deserve the opportunity. And they, they probably felt entitled to lead. And this attitude is probably behind a lot of moments where we cause conflict in our church and between our relationships. I've been here the longest, I deserve. I've put in my time, I deserve. I'm the most qualified, I deserve. And it's that attitude of entitlement. And let me say this, entitlement isn't bad. It's not always bad. Like, it's not an inherently evil thing. I mean, when you think about, um, in England, you think about the, the, the royal family. When their child is born, when there's a prince born, like, what's the new prince name? Prince Harry, okay, excellent. That was a man's voice. I just want everybody to know that. Harry. All right, anyway, so whatever. When, whenever whenever little, little, uh, the little prince baby, super British baby's born, they're entitled. And that's not evil, is it? The highest power in their land says, because you are my child, because you are in my bloodline, you are entitled to these certain rights and privileges. And that's not a bad thing. Where, where we go wrong is when we're entitled in ways we shouldn't be. When we try to claim things that aren't ours. And so think about it. I mean, the good news is the highest power ever has entitled us to things. He's entitled us to things. He said, you get these things. Because you belong to me, you are entitled to these things. And when you look at paradise, when we spend time in paradise together, we, we, we're entitled to ruling with Christ. We're entitled to rewards from Christ. But what about here? What are we entitled to here? Is it we're entitled to our opinions or we're entitled to our preferences? We're entitled to have a, a church look like the way we want it to look? What are we entitled to here? Well, here we go. You're entitled to one, be dead. That's the first thing you're entitled to. So Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, that's cool. Take up your cross and die first. Everything you want, all of your ambitions, all of that, that's now second to me. So we're entitled to that. So if that's your attitude, you're entitled to that. You're entitled to be dead. You're entitled to put everything you want second to what Jesus wants. We're entitled to be servants. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. No servant is greater than his master. We're called to serve all people. You're entitled to that. You're not entitled to people serving you, to making your preferences right, but you absolutely are entitled to be a servant. We're also, we aren't entitled to honor, but we're entitled to give honor. Romans 12, 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. When it comes to entitlement, we think of a lot of things. 
we think of people doing things the way we want them. We think of people thinking about us the way we want to be thought about, talked about us the way we want to be talked about. But in Jesus, the only thing we're entitled to, we're entitled to, to death. We're entitled to being servants. We're entitled to, to showing people honor, outdoing one another and showing honor. May the Lord help us with our attitudes of entitlement. May we have a realistic view of ourselves now in Jesus. The second attitude behind a conflict is, is I don't have. I don't have. Um, they were complaining to Moses because they weren't in the land. We don't have the land. They were complaining about not being in the place of Moses. We don't have the power. We don't have the authority. And ultimately, what? They were just ungrateful. They were ungrateful. I mean, being ungrateful keeps us focused on what we don't have, which what does that produce in us? Bitterness. It produces anger. It produces frustration. It produces envy. You know, uh, it's funny when you look at kids, like my kids, you know what their favorite toys are? The toys in somebody else's hand. Like that's their favorite, right? They're always focused on that. They could be in a sea of toys. And I know we have a sea of toys. I haven't stepped flat-footed on my living room floor for six years, all right? Like, I know there are toys everywhere, all right? And yet the only toy they want is the one in somebody else's hand. And we're not, we're not much different. We focus on what we don't have. Korah did the same thing. And Moses tries to remind him. He goes, wait, hang on a second. Forget what you don't have. The Lord's blessed you so greatly, you get to serve him in his tabernacle. Your sons get to serve him in his tabernacle. You get to be, he draws you close to himself. Like, that's a great thing. What are you upset about, dude? Like, focus on what he's given you. And some of us, we cause conflict in our relationships and in our own lives because our lack of gratitude, it feeds into this greed. We want, we want, we want. And you've heard me say it before, my really, really spiritual saying, focus on the donut, not the whole. Now, I understand that's a little counterintuitive because we serve donut holes in a cafe out there. Maybe we should make a change, but stop focusing on what you don't have. Instead, focus on the blessings that you do have. I think that's why the scriptures tell us what? Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be upset over things. What do we do? Be thankful in everything. Remind yourself of how good God is. Let Thanksgiving replace your anxiety. Let Thanksgiving replace your greed. Forget the I don't have. That only leads to conflict. Or maybe it's the attitude of, I want. They were clear on what they wanted. They wanted power. They wanted authority. They wanted privilege. They wanted the promised land. And they were so selfish, they couldn't even begin to make room in their mind for what other people wanted. And you say, how do you know that? Here's how I know that. What was God's promise to them when he told them they couldn't enter the promised land? What was his promise? I will fulfill my promise through your children. And what did these men do? They tried to take something that wasn't theirs at the cost of their children. At the cost of their children. Now their children didn't inherit the land either. They died with them. That was the end of their family. They were so wrapped up in what they want, they couldn't possibly make room for the needs of those around them. Even the people they cared about the most. They couldn't even make room for that. And we can be so focused on ourselves that we don't think about others. We don't think about their needs. We don't think about their preferences. We don't think about what they want or, or, or what's going to be better for them. We're so wrapped up in ourselves. And even if it's people we love the most, even if it's our children, we can be so wrapped up in ourselves. This attitude of I want is so destructive and breeds conflict. The last one is I can do better. Korah and Dathan and, and Abiram compared themselves to Moses and Aaron and said we can lead better. We, I can be a better priest. I can be a better leader than you are. And what was the Lord's response to them? You acted inappropriately. 
and he put judgment on them. Sometimes we compare ourselves with others and think, I can do better. I'm more talented. I'm more equipped. I'm more capable, right? Like, this is a better fit for me. I can do better. And this thinking can cause conflict. You know, I, I remember um, when I was in college and I, I worked at Sears selling appliances. Uh, I, we, our manager changed about halfway through my, my long two-year tenure there. But halfway through, our, our, our uh, manager changed. Well, we had several salespeople that had been there for over 30 years. And so one of the salespeople thought he should be the new manager. So commissions had just tanked, and it wasn't a good career anymore. But, hey, he said, hey, if I can get management, I'll have better benefits. I'll have a standard paycheck, and I come and go a little bit differently. My hours would be different. This would be great. So he wanted to be the manager. Well, they brought in somebody different. They completely passed over him for manager, and he was furious. And so every single day, as our new manager is learning their job and learning how to interact with us, he's challenging him. I can do that better. And he's just bitter and he's complaining, right? Like he spoke terribly about him. He spoke terribly to the manager, just complaining. But the, but the Lord's sovereign and he's picked where you are. Instead of thinking, I can do better, we should, think, we should ask ourselves, how can I make them better? In other words, how can I help them? Because the Lord's placed you in that place. He's put you in that limited role. He's, put, he's, he's not given you that authority for whatever reason. So stop asking, uh, how can I do it better? Instead, ask, how can I make them better? How can I help them? And when we stop comparing and start asking how we can be helpful, then some really great things happen. I think about it, Sears, what kind of different work environment would there have been if the most seasoned person on the staff had, had been asking that question? had said to our manager, how can I help you? Here, let me give you some information to help you. Instead of trying to crush him to exalt himself, that I can do better only leads us to hurt. So those are the four eyes that are tough for our relationships, that lead us to conflict. Well, the good news is, in this, in this story, in number 16, we get, to see, uh, we get to see what leads to peace. And that example is, is Moses. And we're going to look at Moses, and he's a great example of how to handle conflict. How to handle when someone comes at you like Cora did and make peace. So here are the, we'll close with these, the four B's of peace, if you will. The four B's of peace. One, be humble. Numbers 12, 3 says this about Moses. Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And we see that. When Moses is challenged by Cora, what's his response? He falls on his face. I don't want to fight. I don't want to put myself above you. He never says, do you know who I am? Do you know who you're talking to? That never comes out of his mouth. Have you ever heard someone get like approached and, and there's a conflict there and they respond with, do you know who I am? Or you can't talk to me like that. And, and ever seen that turn out well? Absolutely not. Just the, just the other night, I was leaving the church. It was about 11.30 at night. Um, I just left our Wednesday night program. Some college students were playing basketball, and I wanted to show them how to dunk, and so I did that, you know, like 10 or 12 times. And uh, so, so after I felt like I was going to throw up and die from running for 10 minutes, I, uh, I got in my car to leave. Well, there was, a, there was an unmarked police car in our um, parking lot, and I didn't, know what, I didn't know who it was. And so I just, like, stood there and, like, stared at it. Because I didn't know. I didn't know who it was. And so sometimes that happens. People just pull up in our parking lot for weird reasons. And if you just like stare at them, they'll be like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be here. So I was just like staring. And I was like, not today. And then uh, he didn't move. And I was like, well, maybe today. So I get in my car. 
and and I start to leave and and so I like I pull up at the I, every day when I leave the church I stop at our sign it's a poke stop my kids like to play Pokemon Go so I stop right there it's like a game don't worry about it anyway so I pull up there when I pull up there he pulls up behind me and then I can see it's a Dodge Charger and I was like oh it's just a cop and I was like well that's fine so then I pull out on the street and he pulls me over immediately and uh, so I was like what in the world so he uh, he pulls me over and he walks up. And basically, basically, he's like, what were you doing at the church? You're acting really suspicious. And so in that moment, I have a choice. I have a choice to either say, oh, no, officer, I'm one of the pastors there. We were just, uh, explain myself. We were just up there playing basketball, and uh, that's like a pokey size, like this game or whatever, and all this other stuff. Or I could have said, do you know who I am? Right? <laughs> Who do you think preaches at that church? <laughs> me. That's right. And I'm going home to pray, and you have to pull me over. Don't you have better things to do? How would that have ended? <laughs> he would have apologized, right, and let me go. That's exactly how it would have ended. And I said, that's right. No, how would that have ended? Brother John would be preaching today. I'd still be in jail. My wife would never come get me out, right? I would still be down there. And so have you ever seen that a conflict resolved? When somebody's not humble, like if we're going to work towards peace, it requires, the beginning of that requires someone to be humble. It requires someone, so, so are you humble enough to even start the conversation? Sometimes that's what it needs. There's a conflict and nobody wants to deal with it. Are you humble enough to even start the conversation? Are you, are you humble enough to speak gently in the conversation to the other person? I, I love when Moses did confront him and even challenge him on his rebellion. He never spoke down to him. He never belittled him. He never insulted him. He was kind. He was very kind in the way he spoke. He's very considerate in the way he spoke. And that's humility. And that's what Proverbs 15.1 says. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. And so if we're going to work towards peace in our conflicts, we've got to be humble. It's second. You're going to hate this. You've got to be direct. You know, Moses didn't run from the conflict. He engaged. How many of you, when there's a conflict with somebody in your life, you just go, well, it was nice knowing them, you know, and you just think like, I guess I'll drive, I won't drive down their street anymore, I'll go around, like, you just, you're that, you're that conflict adverse, that you just, you just don't even want to deal with it. You know, Matthew 18, Jesus lays out this process of how we deal with conflict among believers, and the first thing, here's what he says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He doesn't say, be really strange and passive-aggressive when you have to pray in group prayer. No, what does he say? Go straight to him and tell him what's wrong. Be direct. And then he continues, if that doesn't work, I've got more processes, more steps for you to take to resolve that. And maybe you're not a direct person. Maybe you are the king or the queen of passive-aggressiveness. Like maybe that is how you live your life. Like it reminded me, I saw this thing online the other day. Someone had posted from their, their office uh, this is, apparently, someone got really tired of people leaving dirty coffee cups uh, by the community sink right there, like their little kitchen setup. And so they had printed out these cards and stuck them on each uh, cup that was left out. And, and the card just said, really? And that's what the card said. It just said, really? And he would just stick them on all of the cups. Every time we see one, he'd stick it on the cup. And maybe that's you. Maybe I said that, and you're like, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. Like, maybe that's you. Maybe you're that passive aggressive. But the Lord says, no, no, no. You go directly to one another. And you know what's great about that? 
after Jesus tells us to do that, he ends this instruction on conflict with a promise in verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. He's saying, look, if you're going to go in my name to make it right with somebody, you're not going by yourself. I'll be right there with you. So be direct. The second, the third thing, be helpful. What did Moses immediately do when he's confronted? He humbles himself and then what? Offers a solution. He offers a solution. He came up with the, the, uh, the, incest, um, the incense test. And Moses, Moses didn't blow them off. He tried to be helpful. And I love that. I, I think I just would have blown him off. I've just been like, you know what? Uh, you are messed up. And you know what? I'm a little upset right now. I just need you to get away from me. And you know what? You need to fix this. Maybe that's our attitude to a lot of people. You need to fix this. We think about conflict, right? We say to, we say to the, the person who's insulted us. We say to the person who's angered us, this is on you. You broke it. You fix it. I know my kids say that all the time. If I ever, if I ever drop anything or if I ever playing with one of their toys or whatever, we set up all these blocks the other day, like these big old blocks, and, and I accidentally knocked over the tower, and my son just crossed his arms, and he said, you fix it. And I was like, all right, yes, sir, right away, right? Like, I, I broke it. I fix it. And sometimes we're in a conflict. The last thing we're thinking about is how can I be helpful? We're thinking about how am I so hurt? You know, and, and there's a lot of crazy reality shows out there. I don't know if you love reality shows or not. A&E's got a bunch of crazy ones, right? They've had Dog the Bounty Hunter. They've had Parking Wars, you know, following Meter Maze. They've had uh, Storage Wars. Anybody watch Storage Wars? By the way, I want to go on the record. I know it's being recorded. Um, that's my final wish, all right? So when I die, put my body in a storage, like, unit, and then don't pay the bill and that's just going to be the greatest Storage Wars episode ever, all right? Like, just pop up. Hey, there's Grant. Uh, so anyway, please do that. But of course, there's, there's one that's been on the air 11 years called Intervention. And one of the things about Intervention that's really, that's really strange is that um, their family and their friends, they write out their speeches before they speak to them. And why do they do that? Because they want to be helpful. They want to give them information about their behavior that's helpful. And then they have action steps. They don't like leave the attic to go, well, I hope you go find help now. What do they do? They give them action steps. They tell them, all right, here's the next step for you. And so for us to handle conflict well, for us to bring peace, we need to start asking that question. How can I help? It doesn't matter if you are the reason or not there's a conflict. It doesn't matter if the problem is completely on their end. We need to start asking ourselves, how can I help? Don't worry about what they could do or should do. What can you do? How can I help their frustration? How can, I help, uh, their, how can I help bring healing? How can I help this situation we have? Be helpful. And the fourth and last thing, be courageous. The assembly comes together against Moses and Aaron, and God wants to wipe them all out. What's their response? They fight for them. They fight for the best of the people who are fighting them. Isn't that crazy? And that's courageous. Fighting for those who are fighting you, that's courageous. And Jesus did that. Jesus died for us when? When we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Jesus was courageous. He fought for us even though we hated him. And we should be courageous and fight for those. Fight for the best of those who even hate us. And that requires a lot. That requires us putting their needs first. We've got to stop asking, what do I want out of this situation? Start asking, what do they want? In Philippians 2, 3 through 4, it says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. It requires you putting their needs first. and requires sacrifice. In fact, for them to win, you may have to lose. You may have to lose face. You may have to lose what you want. You may have to lose your revenge. You may have to lose your preference. 
Jesus lost everything for us. It, it also, it requires trust in the Lord. If you're fighting for, for them, who's fighting for you? You got to trust the Lord's fighting for you. You got to trust the Lord's working for your good. Like he says in Romans 8, 28, that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can fight for other people. We can fight for other people in a conflict, and we don't have to worry about ourselves. God's got our back. You got to trust the Lord. So be courageous. Fight for the person you're in a conflict with. And you know, conflict is a reality for all of us on earth. Whether you found yourselves in the eyes, like whether you're the, you've got some attitudes there that need to change, or, or whether you found in the, in the bees some, some that you're not following through on. Maybe you're not being courageous. Maybe there's some humility missing. I don't know what it is, but I want to close with some hope from this narrative, hope for all of us. Look back at number 16. You know, after God's judgment, the people of Israel, they come against Moses and Aaron, and they, they accuse them. They say, you've killed the people of the Lord. They're angry about what's just happened. And the Lord was furious, and he says, get away from the midst of the congregation that I might consume them in a moment. He's ready to put his judgment on them again. And Moses and Aaron, they plead, uh, they plead again for, for the people. And, and then Moses turns to Aaron, look at verse 46. Take your censer, put fire on it from, from off the altar, lay the incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation. Make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So this plague has happened, and look at verse 47. So Aaron took it, as Moses said. He ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. Look at verse 48. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. The people messed up. There's this plague just sweeping through the congregation, sweeping through these millions of people. What, is, what does Aaron do? He runs out and he stands there with that offering. He stands there in between the people who are diseased and the people who are not yet. And he stands there keeping them from becoming diseased. He stands there keeping them from getting what they deserve. He stands between the living and in the dead. My question to you is, have you messed up? Of course we all have, but listen. Aaron stood between them and death. Jesus stands between us and death. Jesus is the one who's run out and stands between us and what we deserve. Romans 8, 34. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So have you caused conflict? Do you have some attitudes that need to change? Are you, have you not handled conflict well? Listen to me. Repent, make a change, but then rest, knowing that Jesus stands between you and death. He stands between you and what you deserve. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I don't know who everybody is in this room. I don't know where everybody came from. But Lord, my prayer today um, is that regardless of, uh, of, of what's going on in, in, in our lives, Lord, that we would take what your word has said to us today, we take it to heart. That, Lord, we would handle our conflicts differently. That, Lord, we wouldn't have these, these attitudes that Korah uh, showed us. We wouldn't have these attitudes of, I want or I deserve. We wouldn't have, we, we would have the, we would follow through with the attitude of Moses. We'd be humble. We'd be courageous. Lord, you'd help us serve the person that we're in conflict with. Lord, I can't imagine what that would do for our church. I can't imagine what you would do through a people who handle conflict like that. Great things, I'm sure. 
So Lord, my prayer for my brothers and sisters is that uh, if we're dealing with conflict right now, that you would help us um, make changes. You'd help us identify attitudes that need to change. You'd help us identify action steps and bees that we need to follow through with. And Lord, we'd be courageous. And Lord, for anyone in here, Lord, who, who doesn't know you, or they're, they're just really distant from you. May they know just like Aaron ran. Ran in a, in, a, in a panic. Ran with a purpose to stand between those people. To stand between life and death for them. You have done the same thing. You've taken our sin on yourself died the death we deserve, raised to life so that we can be forgiven. You stand for us. So maybe I have brothers and sisters who have forgotten that. May today they be filled with hope and joy, knowing that you stand for them. Maybe there are people in this room who it's not true for them. They haven't trusted you. They're still doing things their own way. May today be the day where that changes, where everything changes, where they remember that outside of you, they're separated. Outside of you, they're still lost in their sin. That's what your, your word says. But today, they can be forgiven. Today, they can surrender their life. I pray they do it. That right now in the quietness of their own heart and mind in their seat, they would just say to you, I'm done. I'm done living for myself. Forgive me. Change me. God, I want to follow you. I trust what you did for me on the cross. I know you're alive. I know you're offering me a new life, and I accept. I want to follow you. Lord, fill them with the confidence to know that they're forgiven. Fill them with the confidence to know that they're yours now and forever. Lord, we love you. It's in your name. I'm going to ask you.